Greetings and welcome to the third episode of my podcast. It just occurred to me that I have never yet said my full name in any of these. I'm not fussy about how anyone pronounces my name. You can call me anything you like. As long as you don't call me for dinner. For now. For the time being. Once this thing with the thing is over, then I would like to be called for dinner. But for now, if for some strange reason you had to be having dinner with someone and somebody said, pass the salt, the right response would be, pass. My name is Simon Sakari Altonen. Finnish doesn't aspirate. It's not t. For example, Altonen. It's Altonen. We say it softer. But I actually like even more the way some people from other countries have pronounced my name. Like somebody I know said it's Simo, and I came to prefer that, even though it's not the Finnish pronunciation. So please, when one day some of us will have the fortune to be meeting face-to-face or talking over the internet on a call or something, then there is no reason to worry about this. Today has been day one of my 14-day quarantine, which is now required because I came back to Finland from another country. And yesterday I got up at 6 a.m. and I was home only a little bit past 2 a.m. the next night. I flew from the Icelandic International Airport in Keplavik to Heathrow in London. That plane was not so full. Then I needed to wait for two hours at Heathrow which was not bad at all. Finnair was very nice in the arrangements they made for me to reschedule and plan this new flight free of charge, so I didn't even have to pay for the changes to my original return flight. After two hours at Heathrow, I flew to Helsinki, and that plane arrived at almost 11 in the evening, and then I still needed to travel to my apartment in Tampere. T-A-M-P-E-R-E. Of course, in some of the places on that journey, there were people near me, and the plane to Helsinki was quite full. So there were people right next to me then, but not anyone visibly or audibly ill. But of course, one can be a carrier without symptoms, but of course I took all precautions. I have always had hand sanitizer with me while traveling abroad, even before this situation arose. And that was actually the only reason I had it with me now, because people had started hoarding it. So the pharmacies in Finland were out of hand sanitizer at that point. When I left Iceland, I had noticed that some places had started manufacturing their own hand sanitizer And in the grocery store I went to there, they had a whole pallet full of bottles of that. People are catching up with this situation and creating ways to cope with it. Like I said, there of course was exposure to other people on the way that was unavoidable. But I also really had no choice except to take this flight now because Finland had instructed all Finnish citizens with a permanent residence in Finland to return now 
And in this situation, I guess it was the only sensible choice, also considering other things. I want to thank everyone who has reached out to me in this time and asked me how I am doing. People who have shown caring. Today I was again, of course, checking up information about the coronavirus situation and I noticed that I need to pull back from reading about it a little bit now, especially because I'm in my 14-day quarantine. The reality is that it is a very serious thing. It is way more dangerous than ordinary flu. But also, like I just said to my father when I spoke to him on the phone, one day this will be over. It's not going to be like this forever. It may feel like that for now, but the world is going to open again one day and we'll be able to do all the things that we are now missing. There are also some positive things that can come out of this. Certainly, I think people will be able to appreciate more the things we can't be doing now and the people we can't be seeing in person now. I didn't read the article, but I saw a headline today where a psychologist said that we are now missing one basic human thing, which is the ability to hug. Won't it be nice when one day we will be able to shake hands also without worry? I saw at least two friends of mine say the same thing on social media the other day, so I don't know if one of them heard it from the other or not, or if this is already like a meme. But the gist of it was to ask, will those of us who survive this come out of this as agoraphobic alcoholics? Speaking of which, I would recommend avoiding drinking in this time, and especially if you are ill. Alcohol does lower your immunological capacity, so your body would be less able to fight off disease. And of course that's true anyway, even outside of this special health crisis we are having now. But also, I wanted to mention another thing. I'm not sure if I'm saying something that is known by almost everybody already, but it has been studied well and established that stress and fear, these primal responses, they lower your immunological capacity for the time that you are feeling them. And I guess probably for some time after, since it takes your body time to recover. There was one study in particular that I remember where they monitored the immunological response of people watching the opening minutes of Saving Private Ryan. I have actually not seen that movie, but I gather that it starts with a big fight sequence. It was described by, I believe, one of my English professors at the University of Juvascula in Finland a long time ago now. His name is Michael Coleman, and I hope he is alive and well. He was one of my favorite professors, a really genial, likable Irish guy. He described the opening by saying something like, if you watch that, you start to ask yourself, will I get out of this situation alive? 
At least I remember it being Professor Coleman who said that. Sorry if I have misattributed this quote. But I'm again getting lost from my main point. The point I was referring to that movie was that the study showed that during those opening minutes, the immunological capacity of the people watching it significantly lowered, which means that in those moments they were more susceptible, more likely to catch something. Or if their body was already fighting something, then the bodies in question, that sounds like the title of a murder mystery if it's not already, but the bodies in question would be less able to fight anything that they may already have been dealing with. To me this is an interesting question for many reasons. And one of them is, of course, that we can study scientifically the effects of art and entertainment on the human body, in some matters at least. I do wish that that study had also followed what happens later when the subjects watched that movie, but I believe the finding was only about those opening minutes. I would like to know, did later events in the film somehow mitigate that effect? Not that I know about the later events, because as I mentioned, I haven't seen the film. And you can be sure I'm not going to watch it now. I have no wish to have my immunological response lowered right now in particular. But like I said, this is an interesting question. I find that this is a topic, whenever I have tried to bring it up as a matter of discussion on social media, for example, people have strange objections to the idea of art and entertainment actually having effects on us. Which to me is very strange, because of course nothing can be experienced without it having effects on you, because it's the same thing. The experience is an experience because you are having reactions to something. Nothing can go through your mind or your feelings without that affecting the stuff happening in your body and brain. And one reason I wonder about the turn that a lot of entertainment has taken these days, which has been to hammer harder at the viewer with ever more graphic violence and so on. I want to make it clear that I'm not against violence in entertainment or art. I'm very much against it in real life, unless needed for self-defense. If somebody attacked a friend of mine, I would do anything it took to stop that attack. I love David Lynch's movies, which often have very extreme violence in them, including some scenes that when I was younger and was experiencing them, they were quite capable of creating extreme anxiety, more than any other director that I know of. But he also knows how to do the other end, the light, and he's unique in that sense, in my experience among directors on that level, that he can do both the extremest darkness, but also the extremest light, and everything in between, and he has the best sense of humor out of anyone with that kind of range, and doing often dark work. David Lynch is of course completely unique in any sense. He has such an amazing sense of humor, 
I have laughed as hard with some of his work as with anything else in my life. And I remember that was the thing that really clinched my love for him. In addition to the wonderful darkness and the wonderful light, but also the fact that he could really make me burst out laughing. It's not necessarily well known yet, but it was mentioned in his co-written biography, Room to Dream, which I highly recommend, and which is also available on Spotify, for example, as a complete audiobook version. And it includes parts that are not in the book. So to get the fullest experience of Room to Dream, I would recommend both the book and the audiobook. The book alternates chapters written by his co-author, Christine McKenna. In the third person, she relates the backgrounds and the chronological events. And then, after each of those chapters, there's a chapter by David Lynch himself, speaking directly of his memories and adding details and comments. But what I was going to mention from that book is that when Mr. Lynch was younger, he read Mad Magazine. He read it with his friends and they would laugh their head off. So that magazine played a role in forming his sense of humor, which I can't tell you how much I admire that quality in him. That tells me that he's the real deal. I think it can be worrying if somebody doesn't have a sense of humor at all, including a sense of humor about themselves. That's very important, of course. It's also a worrying thing if somebody only has a sense of humor about others. David Lynch is the real deal, just like the Dalai Lama is the real deal. He genuinely believes the things he says and does. I don't know how many people realize it, how funny the Dalai Lama can be. I saw him in person many years ago when he visited Finland. He's visited Finland several times. I forget how many. I went to Helsinki to see him. I'm very glad I can say that I have seen the Dalai Lama live. Before that, I had listened to many interviews with him and I had come to admire his way of expressing himself. His English is wonderful. It's poetic and descriptive in a way that I find with some people from other countries in particular for whom English is not their first language. I genuinely mean it that I think that kind of English can be even more expressive and even lyrical. It has a poetic quality than the English of native speakers of that language. One of my favorite examples of the Dalai Lama's sense of humor is the story he told in one of his books, I think. I haven't read many books by or about him, but in one of them he mentioned that even though as a Tibetan Buddhist monk he is not supposed to eat anything after midnight and before morning, he still sometimes sneaks out to get some cookies. And of course he has a very genuine, authentic laugh as well. I think it can be very funny. And again, to me, that's a very healthy sign in a spiritual leader. And I think it's a good way to identify people who shouldn't really be trusted much. 
what I mean is, if somebody lacks a sense of humor, that's a real warning sign. Johnny Depp said in some interview in Death Ray magazine, there was a magazine called Death Ray, published in the UK for a short time several years ago, and in that interview he said that everybody's crazy and the person who looks like they are sane is probably the craziest of all. I think that's another way of saying the same thing that I was mentioning here about a sense of humor. The reality is that as people we are weird and it's better to just not try to hide all that weirdness from ourselves or others. I tend to think that that is one way psychological problems develop if we try to hide things from ourselves or others. Well, this is hardly a new thought. Carl Jung said that suppressing an emotion doesn't work. It only pushes it under the surface where it gathers even more energy and grows even more powerful. But speaking of growing and going under the surface, I think I should wrap up this episode. It's gotten longer than I thought it would. I was feeling quite tired after my full day trip yesterday. I was originally thinking of recording bits and pieces on the way, but I prefer to use this microphone and it was in my suitcase, which of course I did not have access to during the journey, so I ended up not making a podcast yesterday. That might have been fun to do. One other thing, I did not mention it in recommending the TV adaptation of All Summer in a Day, but I did mean specifically the one from 1982. It occurred to me only later that there are also other adaptations, more recent ones, but I have not seen them, and I love this particular adaptation so much that I can't believe that anyone could do it better. This was podcast number three, and day one of 14 for my quarantine. Thank you to everyone who has listened this far. I've received some very encouraging comments about the podcast and I really appreciate it. It feels really good to know that there are people listening. Thank you and good night.